Last uh, week I mentioned a few reasons why eschatology, or the study of Bible prophecy, is important. And there are many, many reasons, besides the couple I mentioned to you. Another reason is there's an apologetic value, and what we mean by that is it adds to the credibility and the idea of inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, because there really is not prophecy, strictly speaking. Men cannot predict the future. We don't know how things turn out. But uh, God does, because he operates outside of time. He's not bound by time. Time is part of the creation. So the future is, to him, no different from the past. So he can predict things, and he's done that throughout Scripture. We call that prophecy. We call that eschatology. Now, the majority of uh, prophetic passages have already been fulfilled. Most of them surround the coming of Messiah, or the coming of Jesus Christ. So many prophecies, hundreds of them in the Old Testament, that anticipated the coming of Jesus have been fulfilled, some of them only partially, because some of them pertain to a second coming. And in this course, we're looking at the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus himself is predicting things that will be just as certain. Remember, these things must take place, Jesus says. So they will take place, because he has, in fact, announced them. And much of what he's giving us is what has already been predicted in the Old Testament. A lot of these passages he's alluding to, and particularly Daniel chapter 9. That's why we uh, used it in our introduction. You probably, some of you have commented that there's so many different views on prophecy and different approaches, so I thought I'd just kind of put them together for you. Last time I gave you five that relate to the rapture. So that's just relating to the rapture, but remember way back when we introduced the whole course here, understanding the times, I gave you some of the major approaches to not only the Olivet Discourse, but also the book of Revelation and prophecy, sometimes in general as well. So if you want a list of them, here they are, and a little bit of their relationship to one another. First of all, there are four general approaches. You might even say they're more hermeneutical. In other words, they take different interpretive approaches, hermeneutical approaches. We've talked a little bit about the preterist view, and preterist basically means past. That viewpoint puts virtually all, and there's two branches of it, but it virtually puts all of the prophetic events fulfilled before 70 A.D., and the extreme preterists say 70 A.D. is actually the second coming. So already you can see that they have to spiritualize or take passages non-literal. So that's the preterist approach. There's also what's called the historicist approach that arose during the Reformation, where people that studied prophecy noticed at least they thought parallels with what uh, the Bible taught concerning some prophetic events. So they thought maybe the best way to interpret prophecy was by seeing how they are fulfilled periodically throughout church history. So that's the essence of the uh, historicist approach. And by the way, all of these 
in terms of individual people, sometimes they mix some of these together, but if you look at them somewhat individually and separately, there's the preterist, there's the historicist, where much of prophecy is fulfilled during the church age. Now, this viewpoint also sees a future second coming and some events in the future, but it ties a lot of the book of Revelation to historical events. There's also another viewpoint which is totally different. It's called the idealist approach. And what it looks at is not specific events per se, but uh, that viewpoint is very spiritualizing of Scripture. It says that we don't have events, but just kind of a story that lays out eternal principles. The big principle is that uh, Christians win in the end. So we have hope. Well, that's true, but that does not deny the reality of the events that are described. So, very, very spiritualized in terms of interpretation. And then there's the viewpoint that we hold to. I'll give you a different color there. The truth, yeah, this is the truth. Futurist, where predominantly most of the events, particularly relating to the second coming, are future from the entire church age. Now, some conservatives, in fact, some within our camp, some within this church, mix up a little bit of the historicist and a little bit of the futurist approach. And I don't know if I mention it, but we can talk about that later. So those are the four major different approaches. Now, within the futurist, primarily, although there's a lot of mixing here, there's different approaches relating to the millennial kingdom and the second coming of Christ. When does Christ come with respect to the kingdom? And we have three of those. We have three millennial views. There's amillennialism, probably originating at least the roots of it with Augustine when the second coming didn't occur as anticipated by the early church. The thought was, well, maybe we're not interpreting scripture correctly. Maybe we're supposed to not take it so literally and maybe there is no millennial kingdom on earth, but there is a kingdom, but but it's spiritual. And basically the church is the kingdom. So amillennial means no literal or no real earthly kingdom as described in some of the Old Testament passages and even described in the New Testament. So the millennium is now. The millennium is the church age, essentially. There's still a second coming, but there's no literal millennial kingdom. And then there's a post-millennial view that arose later where the church progresses, evangelizes, basically is able to dominate world uh, world history, church history predominantly, such that the church brings in the kingdom and then Christ returns at the end and pats everybody on the back and says, good job, church. How are we doing so far? Well, this view almost died out after World War II. <laughs> but there is a resurgence in some charismatic circles and in reform circles there's a resurgence of post-millennialism today. And the third view is the viewpoint that we take, Linda likes to call it, we're preemies, <laughs> premillennial. And again, the distinction between the futurist and all the four, the other three approaches, the distinction between the three millennial views 
And the premillennial view is that we take a literal, that's an abbreviation for the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. In other words, a conservative, well-established, well-established principles of Bible interpretation generally accepted by most of Protestantism. But what happens when interpreters, even good ones, deal with things dealing with the beginning, they tend to depart from a grammatical, historical, contextual approach. When it comes to things towards the end, again, they tend to depart. So all of the other viewpoints... So the premillennial view takes a consistent hermeneutic. We abbreviate it, calling that literal. That doesn't mean that we deny that there aren't symbols or uh, metaphorical language or poetic speech. But the literal approach, here's the difference. You seek what the author intended and let the author tell you when you're dealing with figures of speech. And we don't have the liberty to make symbols, if they do occur, and there are many in the book of Revelation. We don't have the liberty of making them mean what we want them to mean. We have to seek what the author intended to communicate by using metaphorical or symbolic language. Make sense? So, the futurist, the premillennial view, maintains a consistent hermeneutic. And that distinguishes it from all other approaches. And by the way, if you look at uh, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus doesn't use a lot of symbolic language. He's describing things somewhat plainly, and you can use the Olivet Discourse to help us to understand some of the more difficult passages. For example, like we did last, uh, was it last week? When we talked about famines, and we looked at the parallel in the book of Revelation, Jesus, I think, makes it clear what it is. Description of famine conditions. Okay? So that's the premillennial view. The ones I gave you last week, there are five views relating to the rapture. Now, all of these are premillennial. They're all within the more conservative camp, within those that generally take scripture literally. So these are all within premillennial, but it relates to the tribulation and when does the rapture take place with respect to the the tribulation period that we've been looking at in the Olivet Discourse. Does this help you kind of put all these together in one slide here? I'd like to give you the big picture with one slide. So the five views that we looked at, post-tribulation, in other words, the rapture occurs after that period of time called the tribulation. One of the main drivers for all of these views, and I'm going to deal with this again, we just looked at it briefly last week, but... One of the main reasons is because there's so many passages that speak of the church experiencing persecution. That we should anticipate it. It is normal in terms of uh, how uh, we fit in as believers in a lost world. So, those that see, for example, post-tribulationism say, well, all you uh, pre-tribulation rapture people... You're just trying to get out of suffering. It's kind of an escape. Well, I'm going to make a distinction, just as we've been doing with other things in this period of time that we're looking at. Then there's also, secondly, we looked at this last time, mid-tribulation. And as the words indicate, 
The rapture takes place in the middle, so the church experiences some of the tribulation period, and then God takes out the church in the middle to not experience the most uh, severe part of the tribulation, mid-tribulation. Then there is the pre-wrath, which is used basically one scholar, one individual, and this one, I don't know, that it didn't catch on. It's called pre-wrath. I described it last week. It's similar to the mid-trib, except he doesn't have it at the middle. It's a little bit after the middle, etc. We won't go over that one. There's also the partial rapture view, where there's multiple raptures. There's not a single event. It's more related to when Christians are ready. Those that are ready before the tribulation period will be taken up at the beginning, like the pre-tribulation view. Those that are not ready yet, as they realize that their friends are gone and they've been in uh, out of fellowship, and when they get in fellowship, then they are raptured. So there's multiple raptures. In fact, they're individual rather than groups during the tribulation period. In fact, they even have one at the end of the millennial kingdom. So that's the partial rapture view. So there's the four that uh, we would say, in order to hold them, you have to depart from a literal uh, approach. And the approach that we believe is more biblical is pre-tribulation. So we're futurist, premies, <laughs> or pre-mill, and pre-trib. Make sense? Does that put it in perspective? Now? The first group, they're more, they're more hermeneutical. In other words, the hermeneutical approach. And they somewhat relate to timing in terms of the preterist, first century, church age. So a little bit of both. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Well, what we've been, I'll, I'll describe it in a moment here. I'll answer your question. Okay. Here's, uh, here's your question. <laughs> I'll pay you later for asking. <laughs> okay, so here's a timeline. And if we have the crucifixion of Christ on the timeline, then we have a church age. Now, if you go through each of the views, basically the uh, preterist would see most of Bible prophecy fulfilled here, the 470 A.D., very shortly after, obviously, the first century. Now, the moderate preterists do see a literal second coming, but they put all of the tribulation events, so both of the book of Revelation, way early. Historicists, they see fulfillments throughout church history, and again, they see a future second coming. And the idealists don't look at time at all. These are just principles. And the uh, futurist sees most of the events in the future, most prophetic events, dealing with the second coming. Can I just clarify? Yeah. When you say second coming, you're referring to Jesus coming to reign? I'm, I'm going to answer his question and your question. You'll have to split the... The money. The money, yeah. Okay. Here's your answer. And this is the pre-mill, pre-trib view, which is futurist as well. There is what Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 
It's commonly referred to by theologians as a, the rapture, where Paul specifically says that those that are genuine believers, not churchgoers per se, but those that genuinely have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus says those that are born again, in other words, though that's who he's describing, they will, it says that Jesus returns and it says we will meet him in the clouds. So there are two phases to the second coming. The first phase is private, it's invisible to the world, it's for believers, genuine believers only. That's why I've got two arrows and we meet him in the air there, and it says, and we will be with him forever, basically. Okay, so we'll be with the Lord. Then there's this period of time that we've been looking at in the Olivet Discourse, which is seven years, we call it tribulation. And I didn't want to spell it out because you wouldn't be able to read it, so I'll just use a T there. So that's a that seven-year period. That's Daniel's 70th week. Very precise, very specific. And I believe, and we'll get to it in a moment, that's what Jesus is describing in the early part of the Olivet Discourse. Making sense so far? The second phase of the second coming, this is what makes us uh, premillennial, Christ return. And we're pre-trib because we see a rapture before the trib, all right? And then he returned after the seven years, and then we have a millennial kingdom, all right? Thousand years, book of Revelation specifies it six times, so you don't miss it. It's not symbolic, as our millennialism would say. In other words, it's just a symbolic number, is what... Uh, millennialism would say. We take it literally, and I think it's stressed by John. Thousand years. No more, no less. Make sense? Jim? That's what you said, so Jacob. Yes. Yes. Now we're going to talk a lot more about the second coming. Several things take place there. We're going to talk about somewhat this millennial kingdom as well. Now, we will go to be with the Lord, we will return, and you and I will have ministry during that millennial kingdom in resurrected bodies. Now, there's going to be a whole group of others. Uh, we're going to kind of get into some of that in the Olivet Discourse that enter into the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies to fulfill passages like Isaiah 65 and others that seem to be describing a literal existence on earth. Somewhat transformed, in other words, nature's going to be transformed, all of nature. Right now, if you had a, a lamb and a lion as a pet, would you let them graze together? Only if you wanted to feed the lion. Only if you wanted to feed the lion, right. But in the millennial kingdom, what does it say? The lion will what? Lay down, and those will be friendly. Lions will no longer be carnivorous. For uh, God is going to transform their their appetites. So the new heaven and the new earth are at the eternity line. I, I yeah, that there's a debate even within conservative circles. But I would put uh, Revelation 21 and 22, new heavens, new earth, as the eternal state. Good question. Does that make sense? And 
almost everybody, all of the views put a judgment at the end. And certainly we do because it's at the end of the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment. That's a final judgment. Now there's others that precede. We'll talk about them as well. Does that make kind of sense out of all of these variety of views? Okay, thought I'd clarify that. So, we've looked at a long introduction. Call it the setting, the Olivet Discourse. We're in the period of time that Jesus describes as tribulation, verses 4 through 28. And if you notice verse 29, it says, and after the tribulation of those days. So he's talking about something after this period of time. So everything from 4 to 28 is that period of time. And he uses a word that we can translate tribulation. In fact, we looked at it. We'll look at it again today. That I think is a descriptive term of that period of time. Jesus calls this period of time, at least the first three and a half years, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, they're severe, like a woman in labor. They increase in frequency and intensity, become more and more severe. They're, they're devastating. And I think the first three and a half, I think Jesus is alluding, if you put the parallels with the book of Revelation and other passages from the Old Testament, along with the uh, Olivet Discourse, Jesus calls them uh, the beginning of birth pains. And Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. So here's the little blow-up of the seven-year period, two, three-and-a-half-year periods. And in fact, last time we looked at some passages in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, where it specifies the number of days and the number of months in that passage we looked at. And they're each three-and-a-half years. Daniel. Daniel 9 breaks it up into two halves. And he describes them in cryptic terms as well. Even the book of Revelation picks up on it. We call the first three and a half beginning of birth pangs. That's verses 4 through 14. And then verse 15, he's going to describe an event in the middle. And then 16 to 28 will be the last three and a half years. That fits the book of Revelation time frame. And Daniel, you might say as well. So here we are. We've looked at the deception of false Christ. That's one of, that's the first birth pang. In other words, a lot of deception. False messiahs. We saw the destruction of disasters, wars, famines, Luke says pestilence, and other difficulties that Luke describes as well. In Matthew's account, verses 6 through 8, I call it destruction of disasters. Three, this is where we left off last week, the deliverance to persecution, and you can add to that, I think I've got on your outline sheet, of the saints, verse 9. Now you might say, well, isn't that the church? Could you describe the saints during the tribulation as the new church even? No. No, very good. There's a good dispensationalist. Why not? Why <laughs> The church has a beginning, and it has an end, and it's very, in terms of uh, God's program, very specific. Now, here's where it gets real fuzzy in a lot of theological systems. For example, covenant theology makes the church equal to Israel. In other words, the New Testament Israel is now called church. 
and the fuzzy up the Old Testament and say, well, the church of the Old Testament is called Israel. Well, I think you need to maintain hermeneutics and maintain distinctions. I think the Bible does that. So, the church has a beginning on what day? Day of Clause. Day of Clause? <laughs> Pentecost. Pentecost. Not the last summer. Pentecost. And it has an end. What day? Rapture. After that, now God is going to be very specific in dealing with people still, but primarily through the nation of Israel. And from our perspective, this is uh, why the nation of Israel exists today, and that is a huge concept. After 2,000 years of being scattered throughout the world, today there is a nation of Israel with a government, with its culture, with its religion, with its language, all that that started in Old Testament times. That same nation exists in a plot of land, tiny in comparison to what God has promised. And before it's over, they're going to occupy the whole land. So, there's still a future here. Well, this verse 9, dealing with believers, I gave you a little bit of book of Revelation to explain. Where do they come from? This is not the church. And if you look at the book of Revelation, the church after after chapter 3 is no longer mentioned. Ecclesia no longer occurs in the book of Revelation, except at the very end, in the conclusion, when John is encouraged to send this book to the seven churches. But it's like the introduction that deals with the seven churches. After chapter 3, the word ecclesia does not occur at all again. Every time it refers to believers, they're called saints. They're not called the church. Church is done, on earth at least. Make sense? And also, in uh, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about a new group of believers. He's talking about believers that, in fact, are persecuted. And the passages we looked at tell us that there's going to be a whole generation of new believers that raise up during that 70th week of Daniel. And most of them will be persecuted. And I think predominantly, at least at the beginning, most of them will be Jewish. It will extend. We didn't get to Revelation 7, so who had that one last time? Do you still have your thumb in it from last time? You keep your thumb in it all week? We're going to look at that passage, and we'll see that it includes others as well. And we're going to look at Assyrians and Babylonians, like that. If there's still Babylonians around, yeah. So, we have the beginning of birth pangs, and just to summarize, we say, I think, this is my reconstruction, I think God raises up, based on the chronology of the book of Revelation, the little notes that are there, God raises up the two witnesses of chapter 11, they are prophets, and I think they prophesy, and once they prophesy, I think there's a, somewhat of an immediate response by 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. They respond. The prophecy is that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. We missed him in the first century, but he's coming back. And he's going to establish everything that was promised in the Old Testament, that kingdom. That will be the essence of their message 
144,000 believe, and I believe that their main mission is to evangelize the world. And we're going to see that in verse uh, 14. Not today, but who knows, maybe this summer. <laughs> then they will deliver you. Now remember, this is prophetic. Predominantly prophetic. The you refers to these Jewish disciples. There's going to be a new generation of Jewish disciples. The ones that we have described in the book of Revelation and some Old Testament passage. Who's they? They is the world. The world system of that tribulation period. The Greek word flipsis, for you Greek students, translated in this context, tribulation. And remember last time I gave you a little bit of the word study. It can refer to trouble in general. Affliction, distress. Can refer to anguish. I gave you two examples. John 16, 21. I gave you 1 Corinthians 7, 28. In fact, marriage is in view in First uh, Corinthians 7. Just trouble. The whole spectrum. So it can include minor things all the way to breakdown of marriages. Trouble. Marriage is not with you, I'm sure, but everybody else, right? So it, it's a kind of a broad term. But in this context, and remember, you find meaning to terms in their particular context. Basic hermeneutics. In this context, he's talking about a particular trouble. And in this context, it's called tribulation and or, you could describe it as persecution. In verse 9, it's persecution. They're going to deliver you up. Remember the word deliver is the idea of delivering to authorities. In other words, it's going to be illegal to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I guess you could call them Christians because we are, they will be Christ followers, but don't call them members of the church. That is different. And we can expect persecution. The word is used outside of the book of Revelation. For example, Romans 5.3, Romans 12.12. And it talks about we can expect it at any, any time. In other words, there's persecution during the church age. So, we as pre-tribulationists don't deny and are not trying to escape the general persecution. In fact, we should anticipate it. What we are saying is what we're talking about in Matthew's Gospel and in the book of Revelation, it is a particular tribulation that is being described and it occurs again in verse 21 and verse 29. We'll get there this summer. We'll talk about those. So, the criticism is we just don't want to go through suffering. Well, nobody wants to, but we should be prepared for the answer. And let's look these passages up. We didn't, I didn't give you these last time. The Bible, particularly the New Testament, is full of passages that promise persecution for those that name Jesus Christ. And remember, in verse 9, it's because of his name. Notice the last part of verse 9 there. In other words, because you have claimed to be a believer. It's not persecution as a result of making bad decisions, or it's not tribulation as a result of bad decisions. It's as a result of you giving testimony, walking faithfully, and just because you breathe and you name the name of Christ, you will expect persecution.
Let's look these up, and let's do it quickly. And some of you new people need to jump in here. Uh, these old people just dominate you. We don't want them to do that. Somebody look up First Peter 4. Uh, there's an old person dominating right off the bat. Let's see if we can get a new person to do Second uh, Timothy 3. All right, there's a new person. Okay, look up those two. Uh, well, I should have gotten John. Somebody get John 1633 first. You got that one? Great. While well, she's looking up John 1633, do you have uh, 1 Peter 4? Read it loud. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. There's no strange thing, strange thing happening to you. Okay, this is in a context to the church at large in general. When suffering comes, and in the context, he's talking about persecution. He's basically saying, don't be surprised by it. In other words, you should expect it. You should anticipate. It's not a strange thing. Keep reading. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Okay, notice what should be our attitude. First of all, expect it. And notice it's specific. It's not because you made bad decisions or it's not because you're irritated people. It's simply, <laughs> simply what does the text say? Sharing the sufferings. Sharing the sufferings of Christ. But what's the other little phrase there? Rejoice. Well, rejoice. Read the verse again. Well, do not be surprised before you, which comes upon you that you're testing. Share the sufferings of Christ. Christ suffered innocently. Okay, keep reading the rest of it. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Anticipate it, expect it. Jim, do you have a... Well, uh, I just want to make sure I understand Yes, I'm getting there. Right, you're uh, jumping ahead, yes. Right, you're following exactly. Okay, you got 1633. I have told you these things. Now this is Jesus. He's told the disciples these things. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In the world, in the, in the world, you'll have trouble. Okay, but we can have peace in the midst of trouble by the empowering of the Holy Spirit for those that genuinely know Christ. And you've got uh, four. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus oh. will suffer persecution. Okay, all who desire to, that was Second Timothy three twelve. Sorry about that. All who desire to live godly. Anyone in here want to live godly? What does it say? Will suffer. If you don't, maybe you're not living godly. Maybe you're not faithful. Church in America, you just ask that question. So we can expect and anticipate. So the pre-tribulation rapture view is not an attempt to escape the persecution. All it is trying to do is to maintain a consistent hermeneutic and putting all the passages together and fit them into their proper context, such that the Olivet Discourse and the suffering is described there, and the Book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 18 
speak of a particular suffering, just like we've been talking all along. You remember the wars and rumors of wars? I've said it's specific to the tribulation. The false messiahs, it's specific to the tribulation. That doesn't mean that some come ahead, and there's some other passages that indicate that. Similarly, when it comes to persecution, we're talking about a particular persecution, and the church is not going to experience that particular persecution if you believe in the pre-trib, and when God fulfills it, everybody else will see. So, what I'm saying here, and the Bible also is very clear, let's look these up, and who wants to do Revelation 12? Jim again, he's dominating. Anyone else? Who wants to do 17.6? You got it, Connie? Who wants to do Zechariah 13? There you go. Somebody get Dan. Okay, got Daniel 12. Okay, Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17. Now, this isn't a passage. Uh, you'll just have to study it later on your own to verify. But there's some symbols here. But you have to take them from uh, what John is trying to communicate in the context. And I'll interpret them so we won't spend a lot of time on it. But he's talking about a woman. The woman is Israel. The nation of Israel. And he's going to talk about a dragon. The dragon is defined in Revelation chapter 12. He is Satan himself. Okay, you got 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth... That's Satan. He persecuted the woman. The woman is Israel. He persecuted the woman. Keep reading. Who gave birth to the male child. The male child is Messiah. Keep reading. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's that cryptic description of that three and a half year period of time. That comes out of Daniel. So John is thinking of Daniel chapter 9. A time, how many is that? One. Times. Two more. Plural, and in Hebrew it's a dual, which is specific to, and what? Half a time, so three and a half. Keep reading. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with blood. Okay, uh, you can read the rest of it, just jot it down, but basically God is going to make provision to protect the woman, or the nation of Israel, during this period of time. We're going to look at a parallel passage, beginning in uh, verse uh, 16 of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we'll come back to that passage. Who's got 17.6, Connie? 17.6 That's a different woman, yeah, in that context. Right, the verse right before it says, on her forehead Yeah, what I'm interested in is in the last part of that verse. I thought I was wrong, but uh, you're right. You're right. But, but I was mistaken. Yeah. yeah, I hate to make my annual mistake in uh, January, and February, so I still have time to go ahead. Read, read the last part of it. Okay. So, um, talk of the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. There you go. The blood of the martyrs. Okay, martyrs and saints. So, it's talking about a persecution 
in that context, it's within that tribulation period of time. Yeah, that was the reason I had that. In Zechariah 13, this is a very interesting passage. This is the only passage that indicates perhaps a proportion of the nation of Israel that comes to faith, and there's a proportion that continues to remain in unbelief. Who's got Zechariah? You got it? Read 8 and 9. Two parts. Okay, these are believers during the tribulation that are refined. Part of the purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith and also to refine them, to prepare them for the millennial kingdom. And it talks about a third and two-thirds there. Interesting. In Daniel 12, you got that one, David? And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And there thy people, that's Israel. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even unto that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Okay. A time of great trouble. Like no other in any time, Jesus is going to allude to that same passage. And there's going to be persecution of his people, but there's going to be deliverance and salvation. And I think predominantly the tribulation at least will begin, it will be anti-Semitic, as it always is, but it will extend to others as well. Others that are the result of the evangelism of the 144,000. And saints are described, we won't read these, you can just jot these down for the sake of time. These are probably general, non-Jewish, or maybe Jewish, Gentile as well. Daniel 7, 21 through 25. And in the book of Revelation, some of the contexts refer to Gentiles as well. In fact, uh, why don't we read, somebody look up uh, Revelation 7, 9. This is the one that we didn't look at last time. You got it, Connie? Revelation 7, 9. A great multitude. Now this is a heavenly vision. Notice where they're at and notice that they are dead. They're martyred. 7, 9. Read it. They're dead. They're martyrs. But they're believers. And where do they come from? Every tribe, every nation, which would include Israel. So more Jewish people, more Jewish converts. Not just 144,000 Jews, but Jews in that multitude as well. In fact, this is the greatest evangelistic time in all of world history. That's the only positive thing of the Great Tribulation. The salvation of Jewish people and the great salvation of Gentiles as well. The sad thing is where they're at, they're before the throne, and it's a heavenly vision, they're dead. They're martyred. So, the criticism that we are just trying to escape is answered in that there's always persecution, but what is described in this period of time is a specific persecution. And it's persecution of a new group of believers. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay. 
Then they liberate the tribulation, and not just persecution, but there's going to be a lot of martyrdom. In fact, probably most of the believers that are converted in that 70-year period of time will die. So it'll include martyrdom, that's 24-9. And you'll be hated by all nations. Now notice it's plural. The persecution in the first century was Roman Empire. Not nations, plural. Another little tiny indication that this is speaking of a future generation. And again, it's not because you did stupid things. It's because of his name. Because you, in fact, are attached to his name. You know him personally. So, let's do one more verse and we'll have to stop there. 24.9, let's do 24.10. At that time, that's that, what was that word I gave you last time? At the beginning of verse 9? Here. No. No, no, not time. Then. then. Same word. Tote. In other words, in this same time frame, and it's translated this way right there. At that time, many will fall away. Many will fall away. It's going to be so difficult that people are going to have a difficult time maintaining their commitment to Jesus Christ. And they will even turn on one another. In other words, there will be some that, that are Jewish, not converted. They will turn in their fellow Jews. There will be there'll perhaps be some professing believers that will do the same thing. And if you want an extended description, read the parallels in Luke's Gospel, Luke 21. And in Mark's Gospel, he gives more detail there. will betray one another and hate one another. This is during this period of time. It's going to be a severe time. Brothers turn on brothers. Fathers against their children. That's what Luke and Mark's parallels will say. So it's the first three and a half years. First three and a half years, yep. And remember they parallel the six, six seal judgments. I mentioned that uh, in the book of Revelation, the first seal is peace or a false peace. Second one is war. That parallels what we thought. Wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says. The third one, we looked at, what was it, last, or two weeks before, famine. Now, one that is not in the Alva Discourse, but is kind of the, the product of war, famine, would be death. And next week I'll pick up with that one, and we'll look at it from the book of Revelation. The fifth seal is a heavenly scene, 6, 9 through 11. We'll look at this next week, uh, before the altar. And that fifth seal is martyrs paralleling what Jesus says. They will kill you, persecute, kill you, hate you. Closing thought, be prepared for persecution. We're not trying to escape it. There will be persecution during church age, and we ought to be prepared for it and even anticipate it. Who wants to close for us? Jim. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you and praise you that you will be for all things and in you all things all together. We thank you, Lord, that you have a plan. We thank you, Lord, even now as seen that you are executing that plan. We thank you especially, Lord, that you belong to you and that we look to you and we have a future in hope. We pray as well, Lord, that we will see in the coming week that we will share this hope that we have with others that more like the new kingdom. We ask that the Spirit guide us and power to do that. Amen.